Uh, thank you so much to Matt and the team for leading us, especially that last song, one of my favorites. It makes preaching much easier when you just sung that. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, last week we started looking at 2 Samuel 15 and we went all the way to chapter 16 verse 14. And this morning we're picking up from verse 15 of chapter 16 and we're reading all the way to the end of 17. And we're going to read it together. Uh, it's a long passage, so please do bear with me and especially with these names. After I've finished, I'll pray and ask the Lord to forgive me for mispronouncing all these names. Right, let's read together Second uh, Samuel chapter 15, or 16, sorry, from verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Let's hear it together. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should not be his son. As I served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went to his father's, went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose twelve thousand men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Israel. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude 
and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in, in some place where he is to be found, and we, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the garden. And of him and all the men Israel will, all the men with him, no one will be left. If he withdrew, withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Ahushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting in Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell the king, tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim, who had a well in his courtyard. And they went into it, and the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water, and when they had sought them, they could not find them. They returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zuriah, Joab's mother, and Israel, and Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Ma'anaim, Shobi the son of Nashe from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir the son of Amil from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogelim, brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty. In the wilderness. At least so far in the reading of God's word, may reform our lives to its truth. Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And with Proverbs, we agree that your word proves true. 
And we know, dear Lord, that you have said that you are a shield to your people, especially those who take refuge in you. And so even this morning as we've read your word, we pray that we would take our refuge in you as our shield, knowing that your words prove true. And so we ask, dear Lord, incline our hearts to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. We ask that you turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and set our eyes and our hearts upon you so that we would find life and joy and peace and strength even in your ways. We ask this in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Last week I asked you the question, what is your greatest need? And I made the case that our greatest need is for greater faith. Above every need that we might have or what we think we have, faith is supreme. Without it, we recall, we looked at, without faith it is impossible to please God. Anything that is not of faith is sin. That's what the New Testament says. And last week, as we looked at David, as we saw, he, saw that he run, ran from Absalom, we saw the reality of his faith once again reemerged. We saw his reawakened faith. Faith that I trust encouraged you and caused your heart to long for that kind of faith. Faith that remembers God's faithfulness. Faith that rests in God's will. Faith that relies upon God's help in need. Faith that receives His provision. You know, it will be faith that recognizes even God's loving discipline. Dear beloved, this is the kind of faith we should long for. That's the kind of faith I long for. But the question perhaps we should be asking is this. Why? Why desire this kind of faith? Why should we desire to wake from our spiritual slumber? And why should we desire to walk and run by faith that is alive and active? Well, our passage this morning answers that question. At least gives us one answer to that question. Our great need is faith because we find ourselves in a great fight. Whether you like it or not, whether you see it or not, dear friend, know this, you are in a fight. One of the central lessons of our passage is this, that God's kingdom and God's people face fierce enemies. Enemies who, in unrighteousness, want to overthrow God's rule in your life and want to lead you astray. Isn't that what we see here? David is God's anointed king over Israel. Yet here is Absalom, here is Ahithophel, and they want to overthrow God's appointed ruler. And they want to capture God's people for themselves. And they want to do this all in unrighteousness, in, in rebellion against God. And dear friends, know this, this is the reality of God's kingdom in every age. In every age, there are enemies who in unrighteousness want to defy God's kingdom, who, who despise God's anointed king, and who desire to ensnare God's people. Uh, consider one verse that speaks to this. In the light of Christ being enthroned as king over all things, Ephesians 1, 22 Paul concludes the letter in Ephesians 6.12. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the reality of our world, friends. God's kingdom faces immense opposition. 
Perhaps it's governments that actually persecute Christians. I'm not talking about mosques. I'm talking about real persecution. Perhaps it's anti-God philosophies that, that take hold of people's hearts and minds, leading them to ungodliness. Perhaps it's false teaching leading people into error. There's a false teacher around the corner today preaching in a church around the corner. It abounds. Perhaps it's demonic forces that oppress and destroy. Perhaps it's even carnal vices, lust, drugs, alcohol that ensnare people. The list can go on and on, but the same point remains. God's kingdom faces opposition. The reality is, dear friend, you are in a fight. And the question becomes, how must you fight? How do you resist the enemies of your soul? Well, the answer is by faith. That's why, that's why our faith is our greatest need, because we cannot fight this fight without faith. We need to stand, to stand any chance. We need to take up the shield of faith, as Paul would say. That's why he exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Even at the end of Paul's life, he understood this. He understood how important faith is. He says in 2 Timothy 4.7, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Or consider even what the Apostle John says, 1 John 4. 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Know this, the fight is real and faith is required. But it's not just faith in and of itself, faith in our faith. No, it's faith in our God who overcomes. That's another, another important lesson from our passage that our passage teaches. Not only does God's kingdom have fierce enemies, but the Lord is the king over his enemies. You see something of this in the structure of uh, this passage, and, and uh, please forgive me, I'm going to get a little bit technical here, but bear with me, Ronald Youngblood in his commentary points out the structure of this particular uh, passage. It starts with the arrival of, of Absalom in Jerusalem with his supposed friends. Then the first section really focuses on Ahithophel's counsel. It starts with Ahithophel giving counsel, and it ends with him again giving counsel, chapter 17, 1 and 4. But sandwiched in the middle is the statement of Ahithophel's distinction, that he is esteemed, that even his words are as if the words of God. But the passage carries on. The next section focuses on Hushai's counsel. It starts with his counsel to Absalom, and it ends with his counsel to the spies of David. But again, snuggled in the middle is the statement about Ahithophel's death, that the Lord is defeating his counsel. And then finally, the third section, we see this description of armies. Armies retreating, David's army fleeing from Absalom over the Jordan, and it ends with Absalom's armies crossing the Jordan. And again, snuggled between those two statements is the statement of Ahithophel's death. And again, the narrative ends with Absalom arriving at Mahanim with his, or David arriving at Mahanim with his friends. Now, if you look at that structure, if you see how it flows, how it fits together, you see where the emphasis lies, right? The key points of this narrative that help us understand this narrative is Ahithophel's distinction, his defeat, and his death. 
And those three points are really meant to communicate this. God overcomes his enemies. God conquers his foes. Make no mistake about it, Ahithophel is a fierce enemy. When David hears of his betrayal, David in anguish prays to God for help. Why? Because David knows that Ahithophel is distinguished, is wise, is not to be taken lightly. Plus, it seems that Ahithophel has a, a grudge to bear. Uh, some commentators point out he's probably Bathsheba's great-grandfather. And so here you have a very capable, wise man bearing a grudge. And so quite rightly, David is fearful. Yet what this passage tells us is that David prays and God answers his prayer. Uh, look at verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. You know, you can summarize this passage with four words. The Lord is king. The Lord is king over his enemies. The Lord is king over their scheming and their plotting. Yahweh is king, despite the wicked ambition of Absalom, despite the unrighteous counsel of Ahithophel, the Lord is king. He's the one who reigns in this narrative. He is the one who is over all his enemies. And that should be our joy this morning. We serve a God who reigns and rules despite the fierce opposition we face. And so the primary point of this passage this morning is really this, the Lord is king. But what I want to do this morning is tease that out in two ways for us. I want us to see how the Lord is king over the plans of the wicked and over the preservation of his kingdom. Uh, let's look at them, them quickly. I know I'm a Baptist. I'm supposed to have three points, but I'm still a Baptist. Just hold on. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is the Lord is king over the plans of the wicked. He is king over the plans of the wicked. And you see that in a few places here. In chapter 15, 16, verse 20, 23, you see it in the depravity of Ahithophel. Ahithophel offers this wicked and unrighteous counsel to Absalom. He, he tells Absalom to go sleep with David's concubines. And not just privately, but publicly. Now, this was customary in the ancient world. When a new king came in, he would take the harem of the previous king as a display of his power of replacing that king. And so it's customary, but, but despite it being customary, this is unrighteous in the sight of God. In Leviticus 18, 7 to 8, and chapter 20, verse 11, God says very clearly that this is perverse. This is depraved. This is not to be done. This is deserving of the death penalty. And here we see something of, of Absalom and Ahithophel's kingdom. This is what they want. They want a kingdom not under God, not a Davidic kingdom, but a kingdom that goes against God. Yet even here in these evil acts of these evil men, God is at work. Even in this evil council, God is accomplishing his ends. Uh, do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12 how God through Nathan promised David that he would pay for his sin and, and one of his punishments was that his wives would be taken and given to another man. So 2 Samuel 12, 11 says this, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. See, what's happening in 2 Samuel 16 is God's punishment against David's sin in 2 Samuel 11. 
Now, it's a hard pill to swallow, I know, but the point is simply this. God even uses the evil counsel of evil men, evil counsel, evil actions that they are responsible. He uses that even for his greater ends. So even as, as Absalom plots unrighteously, God is in control. We don't know what those ends are of God. We don't know what his purposes are, but we have the assurance that he has a purpose. We have the assurance that he is good and just and wise. Sometimes we need to be content with Genesis 18:25 that tells us, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now we might not know the ends of those things, but we need to trust in our God, even in wicked and evil actions of evil men. But we see even there the Lord is king over the plans of the wicked. We see it also in the defeat of Ahithophel. In chapter 17, 1 to 14, we see this, that Ahithophel offers more advice, and he suggests taking 12,000 men to conquer and pursue David. And note from according to verse 14, it says that this is good counsel. God even recognizes this. Why? Because David is at a low point. David is weary. He's tired. He's discouraged. And therefore, David is right for the picking. Moreover, by immediately pursuing David, before he's able to regroup, Ahithophel will be able to keep the damage to a minimum. Uh, and, and you'd actually be able to bring people to Absalom. Look at verse 3. I will bring all the people back to you as a bride. And so realize this advice of Ahithophel is, is good advice. If Absalom would have followed it, David would have, been, would have had his fate sealed. Yet even here, God is reigning as king. Because out of nowhere, Absalom asks for Hushai's advice. You see that in verse 5 onwards where Hushai offers counsel that defeats the counsel of Ahithophel. Now at face value, Hushai's counsel isn't all that great actually. As one commentator says, it's full of rhetoric but lacks military substance. Firstly, Hushai over-exaggerates David's strength. Hushai knows that David is at a weak point. He's ripe for the picking. He's weary, he's tired, he's discouraged. And so with vivid language and metaphor, he points them to the legendary David. He points them, he wants them to remember that David is this mighty man of valor. That David is the one who defeated Goliath, he's survived Saul. And this David is able to turn lion-hearted men into fear-laden boys. And so he over-exaggerates David's strength. But secondly, Hushai over-exaggerates Absalom's strength. With great flattery and, and, and great appeal, he, 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 if, um, he appeals to Absalom's pride. He counsels him to take the nation to himself so that he would gather this mighty nation as large as all the sand on the seashores. And the idea is this, with such a great army and such a great king, Victory is certain. No one will be able to withstand Absalom, not even the cities of Israel. Now, of course, Hushai is, is quite craftier. For one, it would take time to gather all the nations, time that could help David regroup. And for another, not all the nations are actually behind Absalom. As you will see, no, no, Joab, Joab is probably with many others still loyal to David. But see, Absalom doesn't see that this counsel is poor counsel. 
uh, as Hephaestus counts, is actually better than Hushas, but Absalom doesn't see that. Why? Because, again, God is reigning here. God is the true king even over the decisions of Absalom. Look again at verse 15. Is that not the point? And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushite and the Archite is, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Now, here we see actually uh, Proverbs 21 verse 1 at work. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, dear church, dear, dear friends, what encouragement this ought to be for us. The Lord is king, and he's king even over the wicked plans of his enemies. They may plot and scheme. They may plan their wicked, evil acts. Yet their plots are not beyond God's providence. Their evil schemes are not outside of his sovereign will. Do you believe that this morning? As you see the wickedness of this world, do you believe that God is actually king over all of it? Uh, Psalm 33 verse 10 and 11 speaks so beautifully to this. It says that the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the wicked. And in contrast to that, listen to what it says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And your friends know this, this is a comfort for us. Rolf, Dale Rolf Davis says rightly, Yahweh's sovereignty is not meant to give us philosophical problems, but spiritual comfort. That even in the most evil and heinous of acts, we know that our God reigns. That he is king over our enemies. Our comfort is found not only in knowing that our God is king, but it's also found in knowing that the wicked will perish. Now, that's what we're taught in chapter 17, verse 23, with the death of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is wise. He knows that by picking Hushite, Absalom has essentially guaranteed his defeat, and therefore he puts his house in order and hangs himself. I think Gordon Kelly is right when he makes this comment. The downfall of Ahithophel signals the inevitable and essentially self-destructive end of wickedness. See, by going against God's kingdom and rule, by following the counsel of unrighteousness, the wicked guarantee their own destruction. Remember, the wages of sin is death, and when you choose sin over God, then you commit spiritual suicide. That's what, that, what Ahithophel is meant to teach us. That's the cost of going against God, spiritual suicide. But again, the outcome of the wicked is for our comfort. It may seem that God's enemies seem to prevail and prosper in this world, yet Ahithophel teaches us, it gives us this assurance that their end is destruction. Uh, David reflects upon this in Psalm 37, actually, and it's a long psalm, but many of its verses offer, give us some helpful comfort. He says this in verse 1 and 2, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 12, the wicked people, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes their teeth, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that their day is coming. And what is their day? 
It's the day of destruction, verse 20. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. And the psalm actually concludes in verse 38 to 40 with this comfort. Transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Dear friend, do you want comfort in affliction? Do you want peace among your enemies? Do you want hope even in the midst of evil? Know this and believe this. The Lord is King. He is king even of the plans of the wicked. I was reading uh, in that biography on Cory ten Boom. Uh, there's that bit where they go, where they're put into prison, and her and her sister are put in one of the worst prisons, a prison infested with the fleas, and she wants to grumble and complain, and Betsy tells her, no, give thanks. Give thanks. The Lord says, give thanks in all things, and Corey kind of said, yes, okay, did it bit of, bit of a, uh, did it under her breath. But she came to realize that, that uh, they were given such large times to themselves in the evenings to study the scripture. And she always wondered why. She came to realize because of the fleas. The gods kept away because of the fleas. And the point I want to get is this. Even through fleas, the smallest things, and even through evil like concentration camps, God is king. He's working His providence. He's working out His purposes for the good of His people. And so we need to rejoice in the fact that this Lord is our King, even over the plans of the wicked. But the second thing I want you to, to look at this morning, and we'll be much quicker on this point, is this, the Lord is King over the preservation of of his kingdom. The Lord is king over the preservation of his kingdom. Again, you see this in a few places. You see God preserving his kingdom, chapter 15 or 16, verse 15 to 19, with the provision of David's informant. According to David's prayer, whose shite is provided, and, and as Absalom arrives at Jerusalem, so does Hushai, and he works his way into Absalom's confidence. And again, God is using the right man at the right place at the right time for the sake of his kingdom. You see God preserving his kingdom even in chapter 17, verse 15 to 22, with the protection of David's spies. In chapter 15, David set a spy network in place, and, and Hushai uses that here to advise David and warn him of the danger. But from verse 15 onwards, we see that the spy network is under threat. Uh, Absalom's men see these spies, and so they chase them, and it's quite suspenseful. You can almost sus sense the suspense. If these men are caught, David is in trouble. Yet again, by God's providence, by his hidden hand, David's spies are caught. They are preserved. They're kept safe in the most unlikeliest of places. We were told they find refuge in the city of Baharim. The last time we saw Baharim was when Shimei, the Benjamite, cursed David. It wasn't a city that was friendly to David. But even there, God preserves his anointed king. And finally, you see God preserving his kingdom in chapter 17, verse 24 to 29, with the provision of David's friends. 
with Absalom hot on his heel, David arrives in that city and he arrives and he's refreshed by his friends. And we read of three friends and all three are foreigners. Shobi, Makur, Bazulai, I butchered those names, but all of them are his friends. And so in his need, in his hunger, God provides, God supplies. And what's the point? The Lord is king and as king he preserves his people. As king, he preserves his kingdom. And realize God is doing more, here, more than just preserving David. He's, he's preserving his promises to David. 2 Samuel 7, we're told of the Davidic promise that David will be a king who, who brings about an eternal kingdom. Yet that kingdom here is under threat. Yet despite this threat, God's promises stand. God's kingdom through David will not be annulled. Even when it seems that David is about to be caught and put to death, even as it seems that he's about to be overtaken, even as it seems that he's all alone and helpless, here is the comfort. God is present. God helps him. Because God preserves his kingdom, his kingdom will stand forever. And what a comfort that ought to be for us. It seems like as we look at this world, it's just getting worse and worse. We wonder to ourselves, is God even reigning? Is his kingdom even present? And the assurance that this passage gives us is, yes, it is. It might be hidden. It might be facing fierce foes. But God will preserve his kingdom. And Daniel 2.44 gives this assurance. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Chapter 4, verse 34 says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Dear friend, do you believe that? But how is that possible? How is it possible that his kingdom perseveres? After all, doesn't God's kingdom come to an end with David, right? David's kingdom comes to an end when Israel is taken into captivity. If God's kingdom is tied to David's throne and David's kingdom comes to an end, then how does God's kingdom carry on? Well, I trust you know the answer to that. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised son of David that even when the throne of David falls, Jesus is the promised Messiah. In fact, let's stay in Daniel. Daniel 7 verse 13 to 14 says this, we're given you a prophecy of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away his kingdom one, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Now the question is how does that happen? Why does that happen? Why does Jesus receive such a kingdom? Why does Jesus receive this eternal kingdom? Well, the answer is the gospel. The answer is the cross in the empty tomb. May I suggest you at the cross we see how the Lord is king over the plans of the wicked. Why? Because God uses the acts of evil men to accomplish our salvation. 
to the New Testament Ahithophel is Judas. Like, like Ahithophel, Judas betrays Jesus and hangs himself. And there he, he betrays Jesus with the intent for selfish gain. Even the religious leaders, out of an envy, condemned Jesus. The bloodthirsty Romans killed Jesus. And all of this evil, unrighteous acts Jesus bears. Why? For our sin. To carry the burden of our sin, the weight of our sin, to, to make us righteous, to save us, to forgive us. He endured the evil of men to save evil men like you and me, men and women. But may I also suggest to you that at the empty tomb, we see how the Lord is king even over the preservation of his kingdom. Why? Because Jesus doesn't stay dead. No, he's raised from the dead. He's enthroned in his ascension. He's exalted on the throne of God. And we can rightly say that not only is the Lord king, but Jesus is king. He's defeated sin, Satan, and death. When he died, many thought that God's kingdom had come to an end, that, he's, that God's promises has failed. Well, the resurrection reminds us that God keeps his promises. He preserves his kingdom. I consider one passage that really ties all of this together. Uh, one passage that, that brought, brings all of this, Acts 2, in his sermon at Pentecost, Peter highlights some of these things. Acts 2, 22, verse 23, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see here that the Lord is king over the plans of the wicked because even in their evil plans, God fulfills his definite plan. But Peter isn't finished. Acts 2, 32 to 36, he says this, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There we see that the Lord is king even over the preservation of his kingdom because our enemy death is defeated. God's promises to David are kept. And Jesus, the Son of God, is exalted and enthroned. What's the point? I told you there's one point this morning. The Lord is king, which means in effect Jesus is king. He is the king who reigns supremely who conquers his enemies, who rules even over the plans of the wicked. And so, dear friends, our greatest need is faith. Faith, not in itself, but faith in our Savior, one who overcomes our enemies. It is only by faith in him that we can fight this fight. It's only by faith that we can overcome the afflictions that we face. It's only by faith that we can survive all the burdens that weigh us down. So by faith that we can persevere in this life and serve God in His kingdom. So our greatest need this morning is faith. 
faith in Jesus Christ as our King. How should you respond this morning? Well, if you haven't believed in Jesus, and I'm assuming there are some here, may I exhort you to resign yourself to this King. Perhaps you've exalted yourself like Absalom in your pride. You think, you thought that life is all about you. Perhaps you've listened to the Ahithophels of this world. You've followed in unrighteousness. You've followed the ways of this world. Or, or perhaps you've been convicted of your sin like David, bearing the shame of your sin. Well, regardless of who you are, you need to yield yourself to this Jesus. Yield yourself to Him as your rightful King. Humble yourself before Him. Follow Him. Obey His counsel. Trust in Him as your sin-bearing Savior. Uh, Psalm 2.12 exhorts you today, kiss the Son, that is, submit to Him, yield to Him, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And so if you have not believed upon Jesus, dear friend, believe today. But if you have believed upon Jesus, may I exhort you today to rejoice in Jesus as your King. Rejoice in Jesus as your King. Psalm 2 verse 11 exhorts you today this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Uh, Alistair Big and Sinclair Ferguson, in one of their books, they co-author, share a Sunday school song that they both learned in Scotland. Um, and it goes like this. Come leave your house on Grumble Street and move to Sunshine Square. For that's the place where Jesus lives. You will be happy there. Well, dear friends, Jesus doesn't just live in Sunshine Square. He's the king of Sunshine Square. He, he, if you're in his kingdom, if you're in his kingdom of light and sunshine and joy, rejoice. Do not dwell in Grumble Street because you have a king who is enthroned. Why must you rejoice in him? Well, the Baptist Catechism gives us a few reasons. We must rejoice in Christ as our King because He subdues and saves us to Himself. He, he, he rules and defends us against our enemies. And He restrains and conquers His enemies and ours. And so rejoice. If you understand that the Lord is your King, joy and rejoicing is the natural response. I, I would argue that's what Charles Wesley understood. Uh, he understood that because Christ is king and because his kingdom is forever, the natural response is rejoicing. Uh, this is the, the hymn that we'll sing now, now but listen to the third, first and third chorus. Rejoice the Lord is king, your Lord and king adore. Mortals give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to Jesus given. Therefore, lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice again. I say rejoice. Dear friends, let us rejoice. Jesus is our King. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and thankful for your grace to us. We thank you that Jesus indeed is King, the King who subdues us and saves us to Himself, the King who rules and defends us against our enemies. 
and the king who, who restrains even our enemies and ultimately will conquer our enemies. We pray this morning that you'd give us greater faith in our king, knowing that he is a God of goodness and justice and wisdom. We pray that we would rest in him, secure in his hands, knowing that he reigns and he will bring all things to the end for the good of his people and the glory of your name. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us this morning, give us greater faith, help us to trust in you. Forgive us where we've fallen short in this. Forgive us our unbelief, help our unbelief, and help us to serve you greater with greater faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.